This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Anyone who knows a little of Australian history should know of John MacArthur. He is credited with developing the merino wool industry in Australia. But what of his wife, Elizabeth? Kate Grenville writes about her in A Room Made of Leaves. Welcome, Kate. Thanks. Lovely to be with you. You aren't the only one to write about this woman. We have both read the biography of Elizabeth MacArthur written by Michelle Scott Tucker. Rather than in competition, Michelle encouraged you to write this book. How is this book different? Look, it's not correct to say that Michelle encouraged me to write this book. Mm. Uh, I had, in fact, been researching and writing it for something like 20 years because I first came across Elizabeth MacArthur when I was researching The Secret River. So that's just about 20 years ago. And as part of my background, I came across Elizabeth MacArthur and I put her in the mental file called Aha, There is a Story Here, Come Back to It Later. So um, Michelle's book came out. My book was basically written when Michelle's biography came out. Um, and I, skim, I skimmed through it just to, you know, for interest. And I'm very pleased that someone has, has gathered together the little that's known about Elizabeth MacArthur. Um, Michelle had her, her work cut out because there is very little actually known about Elizabeth MacArthur. Far more is known about her husband. Of course, he was the man. So it would not be correct. But Michelle and I, when I knew that my book was going to be published, I reached out to Michelle and said, look, you know, we're passionate about the same subject. Let's have a coffee. So we did. And uh, she was very, she was very encouraging. But um, when I read her book, there were questions that I wanted to ask. And of course, she couldn't answer them. You know, just why did Elizabeth feel marry John MacArthur. He didn't have money. He didn't have, uh, he wasn't handsome. And thankfully, because yours is a fiction, you were able to hmm, maybe tweak us a reason or two. Yes, look, you've put your finger on one of the points on which Michelle and I would in fact disagree. Uh, she trusted a much earlier historian in saying that, um, Look, the real reason why they married, it basically, is probably that Elizabeth was four months pregnant on their <laughs> wedding day. <laughs> Look, you spoke about the letters. Were both Elizabeth and John MacArthur prolific letter writers? Uh, John certainly was. Uh, the letter, usually rather vicious, was one of his many weapons. John MacArthur was a man of ruthless ambition. He was a draper's son and so he had very little money, no status, and as you've said, he was not—he was no oil painting. <laughs> uh, from his earliest days, he was uh, beset by huge mood swings. I mean, these days, I think he would probably be diagnosed and medicated. So he left an enormous paper trail from which he emerges as a ruthless bully, a most unpleasant, ambitious, clever man. Elizabeth is a trickier subject. She left quite a lot of letters to her family and friends back in England, and they are, without exception, very bland, uh, rather dull, the kind of genteel letters that would, she would have been expected to write. In other words, they are not personal documents, and they wouldn't have been private documents. They were expected to be read out in the parlour to everybody. 
Now, the big gap in her, and the only, th the only things we know about Elizabeth are those rather dull letters that she's left. Finally, when they come to Sydney Cove, they are in some sort of society. And what are the salons that uh, happened at the MacArthur House? What were they? Well, Elizabeth was one of the few women, she was the only officer's wife. And it was a very class-ridden culture. So the wife of an officer did not socialise with women who were not of her social class. And there was only one other woman that she was kind of supposed to relate to, and that was the uh, wife of the clergyman. And she says in one of the few interesting phrases in her letters, she says, uh, Mrs Johnson was a person whose company gave me neither profit nor pleasure. It's <laughs> that a little tiny slipping of the mask. You think, oh, okay, Elizabeth, you're not quite as boring as most of your letters appear. But she did entertain many and of the officers. One of those men was Captain Tench. Well, he's got a bit of notoriety for himself as being contracted to write a book about the early Sydney Code. Yes, Tench is a very interesting man. He wrote a, a actually very charming and amusing book called 1788. So Tench left this account of the first years of the settlement, which is one of the half dozen accounts that we have from the time. And it's by far the most engaging. He was clearly a charmer. However, it's easy to take him at face value, you know, a charmer and everything he says is true. But of course, uh, one of the reasons I wrote this book was to say, do not believe too quickly about any historical source that you find. And so I read Tench with an eye to thinking his agenda was to make a very charming book in which he came out looking pretty good. But what Isn't really is true that the MacArthur's never feature in that book? It is absolutely true. Neither of them feature in the book except that Elizabeth MacArthur features in a footnote. And so I have a scene in which I have Elizabeth MacArthur saying to Tench, please promise me that you will not put me in your book. Mm. Because you could see that she could get into trouble from her husband if that happened. And he says, I, I promise on my honour, my lady, I won't put you in my book. But of course, he puts her in a footnote. But it is a remarkable omission that they are not mentioned because they were very, very important people, particularly John, in the, in the early politics of the colony. So the MacArthur's moved to Parramatta. Now, you put a few reasons why they might have done that, perhaps to move Elizabeth away from all of these men, or as Elizabeth says, so that perhaps Mr MacArthur can go back to Sydney for a pretty young convict doxy. Captain Tench also had introduced Elizabeth to Mr Dawes. Yes, William Dawes was, was another officer. He was not only an astronomer, but he was a linguist. And he's the only person who really seriously and respectfully set out to learn the language of the Sydney people. He had a very respectful, interested, non-patronising sort of attitude to the people whose language he was learning. He's a very charming and somewhat enigmatic man. Uh, Elizabeth MacArthur, in, in real fact, as well as my book, did ask him for some lessons in astronomy and also in his company would have met a lot of the Aboriginal people who visited him, taught him language. I, uh, prior to that in Sydney Cove, and this is a quote from your book, this is how Elizabeth saw the natives. The men were a little frightening, tall, well-made, naked warriors, carrying themselves with assurance and authority, their spears held casually in their hands. The women did not frighten me exactly, but their frank, confident, nakedness was alarming. Now, she met 
some Aboriginal women with Lieutenant Dawes. And it was through those women that she actually understood that they had so many similarities, not differences. Holding the baby, seeing the baby, realising their sense of humour when they looked at Dawes and looked at Elizabeth and did some comments about Dawes's little friend that he had to translate. That's right. These women, look, I have not been to many uh, Aboriginal communities, but the few that I have been, I was really struck by the humour, the shrewdness and the perceptiveness particularly of older Aboriginal women. I'm thinking of, you know, a couple of examples that I, that I experienced. So in my book, the women who are watching Mrs MacArthur and Mr Dawes can see long before they can that there's, uh, you know, there's a bit of sexual attraction going on. In fact, they, they kind of laugh at them in a nice way. And it is what makes them both realise, as you say, Dawes looks down at himself and... Um, when Elizabeth MacArthur follows his gaze, he says, you know, married woman though I was, I blushed. In this whole sort of sharing of astronomy and perhaps other things, Elizabeth wrote, I mistook my abilities and I blush at my error. Now, this is the line that invigorated your juices as a fictional writer, apparently. That's right. All those years ago, back in about 2001, when I was researching all this and I came across that, that phrase in what was otherwise a fairly dull letter, it leapt out at me. It's like she was, those letters are a mask and just for a moment the mask slipped because what you feel in the context of her letters, I know it's not a very scandalous phrase, I blushed at my error, but I can tell you that in the context of her otherwise very bloodless letters, it leaps off the page with a physicality and an erotic charge that nothing else does. I remember reading it and sitting up straight and thinking, oh, right, there's a story here. She fancied Lieutenant Dawes. I wonder what happened after she blushed. You know, we've never really sort of said that this is not true history. It's a fictionalised account of history, a journal found by a writer. And this is, comes from that journal. But this tangling of two hearts, but maybe nothing more than the mischievous invention of a sly old woman. Yes, look, the book is, is a series of jokes, really. The basic joke is that I pretend to have found the memoirs, the long-lost, secret, scandalous memoirs of Elizabeth MacArthur. I pretend that I found them somewhere and all I've done is publish them, brought them to the world. I then run the memoirs and at the end of the book I say, of course, I didn't find anything. I didn't find these words. I just wrote them. And I'm very clear to say this is fiction. This is not history. So I'm playing a bit of a game here because my real goal in writing this book is to make people think again about the myths and the stereotypes and the received wisdoms that we all live by. Behind every story that we read and believe is another story that obscures that other story. So we have to always be listening for the other story behind the obvious one. And that's why I've set up this, this kind of la these layers of fiction and fact. Well, this is where we get, of course, Elizabeth's story, but also, Kate Granville, you've given us the story behind the Battle of Parramatta. And I thought this was just, oh my goodness, I hadn't thought about that. 
And I think that's a sense of truth that you wanted to come out of this too. I'm so glad you responded like that because that's exactly how I hoped people would. And it's how I did. You know, because the MacArthur's moved to Parramatta, I thought, well, let me read what Parramatta was like at that time and let me read about the history of it. So, you know, you, you, you very soon discover this thing called the Battle of Parramatta. And it has been accepted for many years as a, as a battle in which a lot of Aboriginal warriors headed by the famous Pemawi were supposed to have come in and actually attacked the township of Parramatta, which was a garrison town. It was one of the most heavily fortified places in the whole of the Southern Hemisphere, probably, certainly in New South Wales. So the idea that these clever warriors who normally did guerrilla warfare, which was incredibly effective, the idea that for once they would expose themselves to direct musket fire, and quite a few of them were killed that day, just struck me as implausible. I thought, okay, so what are the sources for this? And I went back and I then realised that the only contemporary source for that bit of history is an account by someone who was in fact in England at the time. So he must have been told about it by somebody else. And that's when it started to unravel. And I thought this is yet another example in this book of not believing too quickly. Let's take that apart and think how else it might have been. Let's think about it perhaps from the point of view of those warriors. What else might explain those events? It was a trick, a trap, or an ambush, or a promise betrayed. Whatever it is, the truth has been silenced, and this other story, the Battle of the Parramatta, was put in its place. It's another quote from the book. Yes. Look, there's so much in this. I'm not going to be able to go into beautiful parts of why sex was so horrid for her. Oh, sex with her husband was not the greatest fun in the world, but she did uh, have a very, very nice time with somebody else. She did, she did. And just how it was such a complicated and dangerous business being the wife of John MacArthur. Kate Grenville has this historical fiction turned inside out, giving us what a seemingly demure woman might really have thought. Fantastic read. And it's Kate Grenville's A Room Made of Leaves by text. Thanks very much, Kate. Thanks, Jan. It's been really nice to talk. And now, here's David. They say there's never any point in complaining as nobody listens. But when Philip Roth's novel became the centre of a censorship controversy in Australia, everyone was listening. Patrick Mullins details the trajectory of that novel when it was released in Australia and its influence on the publishing and legal fraternity in his work, The Trials of Portnoy. So, Patrick, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me, David. Now, would it be fair to say that Australia was a bit of a social and cultural backwater back in the 1970s when Penguin Publishers planned to release this novel? Absolutely. We were a bunch of wowsers and prudes. For 70 years, we'd maintained a system of censorship that screened out all sorts of books, books that dealt with supposed obscenity, blasphemy, sedition, that screened out anything that smacked of sex or undue violence. And we loved it. By 1970, 60% of this country thought that our censorship policies should stay in place or be extended further. Interestingly enough, Joyce, D.H. Lawrence, these were just some of the names of banned books. An interesting one for me was Alex Buzo's Norm and Armin, where the final line of that play 
is effing boom. Uh, interestingly enough, the swearing was objectionable, but today the term boom would be objectionable. So you have social mores changing all the time. This is one of the things that was kind of interesting about the censorship system in Australia was that for a very long time, customs officers, when deciding what to ban, would do so on the basis of what was objectionable or indecent or obscene within their own personal experience. So there was this role of community standards, and those standards were always in flux. and They were different from place to place or even from people to different people, um, with the effect that you had sometimes books being banned that were, to quite a lot of people, unobjectionable. And Portnoy's Complaint, which was... Um, you know, it's famed and acclaimed as a novel about masturbation, was absolutely unacceptable for a, a segment of Australia's population. Um, but for others, it was kind of a joke and it was something that perhaps could be talked about and that should be talked about. Um, so this is one of the reasons why this book is so interesting. You've established why Philip Roth's novel might have contravened social propriety, but Penguin Publishers virtually launched an assault. It was almost like a, a campaign that had to be meticulously orchestrated to get the novel out there. The nonfiction editor at Penguin, John Hooker, whose idea it was to publish Portnoy's Complaint, likened this to the Germans going into Poland in 1939. That was the kind of meticulous planning that went into it. Portnoy's Complaint, having been banned from Australia, had to be smuggled in. Penguin Books smuggled in three copies, they then had them sent to Sydney where they were printed. So they printed 75,000 copies of this book. And then they had them shipped all over the country um, to 2,000 bookstores from Perth to Sydney, Darwin to Hobart, uh, and unveiled on the exact same day, the final day of winter 1970. The idea was if you get this book out in huge numbers all across the country, then you were launching an all-out assault on the censorship system, which at that time was predicated on a uniform agreement between the states to prosecute any infringement of the obscenity and censorship laws. Now, this is where it becomes absolutely hilarious from my reading, because you have a series of trials against the publisher, distributor, the booksellers, and it all ends up in comic turmoil, because when you look at what happened with Penguin being put on trial, they actually lost the first case, but I think something like only a hundred dollars penalty was imposed plus four dollars fifty cost. Yeah, these trials were farcical. Penguin and booksellers that were charged around the country, all of them marshaled literary witnesses, you know, experts who came and testified to the worthiness of this book and spoke about the merit that a scene about masturbation would have. Uh, and you know that it would not deprave and affect readers. But the censorship authorities were really relying on having victory in each and every single one and imposing such a harsh punishment that no one would ever take on the censor system again. That didn't happen. Penguin lost the case, sure, but it was fined $104.50. That's a peppercorn, considering that they've sold 75,000 copies of this book. In WA, the manager of the Communist Party-owned bookshop, the Pioneer Bookshop, managed to win the case, which meant that the book could be sold in WA. They lost in the Northern Territory. Um, there were failed trials in Tasmania. Um, there were two successful trials against booksellers in Queensland. But in New South Wales, when the trial came up before a jury, the jury could not come to a verdict. So the New South Wales government ordered a second trial 
And again, the jury could not come to a verdict. So after all these arguments about censorship and about uh, the acceptability of reading certain books and the ideas of, of you know, what, what's literary merit, what is artistic merit, what will deprave and corrupt these readers, all of these just came undone. And the effect was that you had the book available in some states, banned in others, and the federal government eventually had to cave in. They had to remove the ban on Portmore's complaint and allow the book into Australia. What is fascinating then about these trials is that subject of literary merit, because the absurdity of a judge trying to define the parameters of the argument, literary merit needs to be defined as style and form, and you have to work within those parameters, and the only word for it is absurd. It is. One of the most bizarre things about it was you'd have these witnesses, highly acclaimed academics and highly acclaimed writers and journalists and psychologists coming and giving their opinions. But then the prosecutor would get up and say, well, you're too much of an expert and the literary merit that you see, that won't be seen by somebody else. They won't notice the parallels. They'll just see a dirty book. So it was this kind of bizarre argument that because something's written beautifully or written with a serious sense of skill, that therefore it can't possibly at the same time be pornographic. Um, and this is one of the reasons why Portnoy's Complaint is so interesting, because on one hand, it is an absolutely wonderful book. It's very funny. It is incredibly well written. It's compelling. The voice is fantastic. But at the same time, you can well argue that it's pretty filthy. But it yeah. has to be seen in context because yeah. it reaches the height of absurdity. So in terms of these prosecutors reading out a passage, they're reading out an offensive passage in isolation and not seen in the context of the whole, which may be leading to an absurd end. Absolutely. And they're, they're, they're reading out these passages, isolating them as though they were something kind of invented and something that didn't happen regularly. One of the most famous instances in the New South Wales trial was when the prosecutor read out a passage from Portnoy's complaint that describes um, a coloured woman shitting on a glass table beneath which a man masturbates. And the prosecutor was expecting Patrick White, you know, the future Nobel Prize winning author, to kind of shudder and go, oh, that's disgusting. But White just shrugged his shoulders and said, well, I've heard of worse happening in Sydney, actually. Just wondering as an overarching question then, this social change that occurred in terms of attitudes and perceptions, the legal institutions, the political institutions don't seem to be in touch with what is occurring. They're trying to hold on and preserve the past. Yeah, m much like Prince Philip to the Queen, they're always 20 paces behind. The 1970s, it has to be remembered, are a time of great ferment and change in Australia. Um, we had marches over participation in Vietnam, protests over women's rights, over the treatment of Australia's Indigenous people, uh, and the Liberal Country Party government that had been in, in power for two decades was kind of crumbling, it was drawing to its end. Um, and Portnoy's complaint and the assaults on censorship policy were a big part of that change. Uh, and the, so the establishment, the judiciary and the politicians were clinging on for dear life, you know, with their fingernails trying to hold on to this policy that was archaic and outdated. And no better measure of that, I think, exists than to see what happened when Portnoy's complaint was published at a time when selling 10,000 copies of a book in a year was enough to make it a bestseller in Australia. Penguin sold the 75,000 copy print run in two weeks. No matter those polls for the maintenance of censorship, this was a system that was outdated and that would be consigned to the dustbin in only two years' time with the coming of Whitlam. Well, that 
sort of brings us to the end of this whole saga and your work in fact details it more meticulously than we've been able to hear in a short interview but Whitlam then came in and changed the landscape and the ending really is anticlimactic it just sort of peters out almost exhausted in terms of how it played out one of the most astounding things about this is that all it took it didn't take a massive court case to bring the system undone it didn't take um, a massive legislative change to bring this undone it simply took a minister going we're going to stop that that's it it was you downplay the list of, of priorities that censorship was to have in the customs portfolio uh, and you remove the censorship from the customs um, administration after that it was a really quite anticlimactic moment in many respects but it was a hard-won moment as well there was a long line of opposition uh, and quite courageous acts by people defying the censors um, that had led up to this point and i think they did feed into that appetite for change that we began to feel in Australia in the late 1960s and 1970s. Unfortunately, we're going to have to end the interview there, but the book is The Trials of Portnoy, and it goes into that history and saga of the novel Portnoy's Complaint being released in Australia. The author is Patrick Mullins, and it's a scribe publication. So, Patrick, thank you very much. Thanks, David. It's been great to speak with you. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.